This is Marcus Slayton and Sam Schwartz with your local news coming to you live from our homes and the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Senator Ron Johnson only paid $2,100 in state income taxes in 2017, despite reporting an annual income of at least $450,000. According to the Journal Sentinel, Johnson's average state income tax payment over the past 10 years was sixty dollars a year. The sudden one-year dip could be explained by a number of factors, including business losses, one-year deductions, and large charitable contributions. Johnson, Wisconsin's senior U.S. senator, is seen as a prime target for Democrats going into next year's fall elections. Eleven Democratic candidates have already lined up for the chance to square off with Johnson, who hasn't confirmed whether or not he'll seek a third term. A new report from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum reveals that less than half of Wisconsin high school seniors filled out FAFSA forms last year. The FAFSA form, or free application for federal student aid, is considered a major predictor of whether or not a student will go on to college. About 46% of Wisconsin's class of 2021 filled out the form, down from nearly 53% in 2019. Luna's Groceries, a locally owned grocer, has pulled out of a city-led development on South Park Street. According to the Capital Times, the grocery store was a key component of the project at 1402 South Park. Area neighbors have been pushing to keep a grocery store in the neighborhood since a pick-and-save in the area announced it would be closing when its lease ends next year. Last month, the city purchased the mixed-use development space, which also features 150 units of affordable apartments, for $4.6 million. In a press release, Alder Tag Evers, who represents the area, wrote that, quote, Our goal from the beginning has been to avoid a gap in grocery services on the south side and to make sure the grocery store not only gets built but succeeds in the long run. And in yet more food-related news, today is the Dane County Farmers Market 49th anniversary. Since 1972, the market has grown to be one of the country's largest producer-only farmer markets. A technical snafu yesterday delayed a planned public hearing for the renaming of James Madison Memorial High School. The Capital Times reports that the public hearing has been rescheduled for October 14th at 6 p.m. While the tech problem may have been a minor inconvenience, it does give the public more time to share feedback about the four proposed alternative names for the high school. Those those alternatives are Memorial High School, Darlene M. Hancock Memorial High School, Val Phillips Memorial High School and Bruce Dahman Memorial High School. City data shows that traffic control efforts along East Washington Avenue have resulted in slower traffic along the corridor. According to the Cap Times, six people have been killed by motorists along East Wash since April, most recently on September 20th. The city has reduced speed limits along the thoroughfare to 25 and 30 miles per hour along certain sections. Certain staff, city staff, have also retimed traffic lights and improved crosswalks and lighting along the road. The MPD has issued more than 2,500 warnings and citations on East Wash so far this year. 
And now here's your daily COVID-19 data. The state's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases currently stands at 2,416 cases. Nearly 54% of the state, just north of 3.1 million people, have completed their vaccination series. As of Tuesday, the state's moving average of those hospitalized with COVID was 1,093. More than 90% of the state's hospital beds are currently in use. And now on to today's top stories. Madison's bus rapid transit project is rolling full. The project will change to connect the city's east and west side to high-frequency minimal stop bus service has drawn criticism in recent months from downtown business owners. For an update on the project, we turn to WORT producer Jeff Chester. Yesterday evening, Madison City staff gave the first of several community updates on the city's bus rapid transit project, or BRT for short. Speaking at yesterday's meeting, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway outlined the need for the BRT system by pointing to Madison's growing population. According to 2020 census results, the city grew by 16 percent, or roughly 36,600 people over the past decade. Our new census data indicate that Madison is actually growing faster than we thought. Uh, We knew it was growing, but pretty dramatic numbers. And our Metro Rapid BRT system will help us accommodate this growth and make Madison an even more attractive place to live, work, and visit. The more than $160 million multi-year project has been a cornerstone of Rhodes-Conway's administration, but it's garnered strong pushback from downtown business owners, nearly all of whom are consolidated along State Street. Those local business owners argue that the 60-foot high-frequency buses would disrupt the downtown retail hub. The State Street portion of the BRT line would roll through the top three blocks of the street. City staff have already redesigned the two State Street stations, redesigns which they say meet many of the business owners' concerns. Mike Kachvala, a city transportation planner, outlined the alterations at yesterday's meeting. We have made some design changes to these stations on State Street. We have made the shelter area as small as possible. Uh, We have removed some of the less transparent parts of the the shelter uh, to make it as transparent as possible. And we have Uh, made the the general length and size of the stations as small as possible. Local business owners aren't the only ones raising concerns about the project. Four of Madison's former mayors penned an op-ed in the Wisconsin State Journal this week, disavowing BRT's presence on State Street and the Capitol Square. But Rhodes-Conway has shown no indications of budging on the issue. As Metro Transit's general manager, Justin Sturenberg, put it at yesterday's meeting. That decision was made, um, and so we've, we've proceeded with our environmental documents, um, with our design work, with that expectation. And so reevaluating the routing is not really intended to be within the scope of this meeting. One of the concerns raised at yesterday's meeting was how events downtown, such as Art Fair on the Square and the Farmer's Market, would impact service. Kachvala says that those events would force the bus lines to reroute. When the Capitol Square or State Street is closed uh, to buses, we will typically detour using the Capitol Loop, typically for uh, Capitol Square events and West Washington and Broombassett for State Street events. The proposed line also takes into account bike traffic, which will be routed around certain bus stations along the line. 
Sternberg says that the bus route will also provide better transportation services to Madison's communities of color. And so this, this project is um, certainly targeted at the densest areas of the city, but also um, providing better service for many of the areas of color, uh, communities of color throughout the, uh, throughout the city. The next community update will be held virtually on October 7th. According to Metro Transit, that update will focus on BRT's route through the east side. Subsequent meetings next month will focus on the west side, the downtown area, and the UW-Madison campus. You can find more information about those meetings and links to join on the City of Madison's website. The east-west BRT line is tentatively scheduled to begin service by fall 2024. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. New research shows Wisconsin residents continue to struggle with the price of prescription drugs, with the annual average cost well above their personal income growth. That's leading to renewed demands for Congress to intervene. For more, we turn to Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Prescription drug costs are climbing faster than wages for the average Wisconsin resident. That's according to a new analysis, which is tied to pressure for congressional action. AARP's latest RX Price Watch report says between 2015 and 2019, the average annual cost of prescription drugs increased by more than 26 percent, while the average income for Wisconsinites rose by nearly 14 percent. AARP's Lisa Lampkin says it's becoming too difficult for people who need medications to absorb these costs. Older Wisconsinites are feeling the pinch of inflation in the grocery stores and at the pump. And unfortunately, they're feeling it even more when they go to the pharmacy to pick up their prescription drugs. AARP and other groups want Congress to give Medicare the authority to negotiate drug prices. That approach has surfaced in a House bill and is a focal point in the Biden administration's budget reconciliation plan. But opponents, including the pharmaceutical lobby, say it would give the government too much power to set prices and hamper research and development. Lampkins argues that drug companies are making profits off innovative work that is largely subsidized by tax dollars. New drugs introduced over the past 60 years, most of the important drugs were developed with the help of research conducted in the public sector, such as universities. Looking at specific drugs, the analysis found the annual cost of Victoza, which treats diabetes, rose by more than $3,000 between 2015 and 2020. Lamkin says that isn't helpful to the more than 330,000 Wisconsin residents with diabetes. Other reforms being floated include penalties for companies that raise their prices faster than inflation. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court extended qualified immunity protections to law enforcement officers. The decision effectively shielded officers from lawsuits seeking financial damages for civil rights violations. In the ensuing 54 years, the protection has been widely condemned by civil rights groups. Now a Dane County supervisor is floating a proposal that asks federal and state lawmakers to end qualified immunity. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Dane County Supervisor Anthony Gray, the proposal's author. 
Why did you introduce this resolution? What was your motivation for, for floating this proposal? My motivation was watching the fight up in the U.S. Congress addressing this issue. For a long time, they had been trying to pull off a bipartisan police reform bill. And one of the issues that they could not agree on, in fact, it was so controversial for the Republicans that eventually the Democrats even took it off the table. They still couldn't pass the bill. But having said that, one of the issues was the question of qualified immunity for Leo's. And to me, it didn't seem like even a close call. It seemed to me that everyone should have some accountability for their behavior. And indemnifying people against the consequences of their behavior, I believe, incentivizes poor behavior. Now, that's at the federal level, but I understand this this resolution also calls for some action at the state capitol. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. We can't actually pull qualified immunity at the county level. It has to be at least at the state level. And Representative Jonathan Brostoff introduced a bill to do exactly that at the state level. And so this resolution is a very simple statement of values from Dane County, encouraging both our state representatives to support Jonathan's bill in the General Assembly, but also our federal representatives to support the bill, um, I believe it's Cory Booker's, at the national level. So this is really just a statement of values from the people in Dane County. And for what it's worth, Milwaukee County has already passed this very resolution. Now, I'd like to dive a little bit into the into the actual text of the proposed resolution. Now, there's something right off the top that hits me. And in your resolution, you state that the current statute of qualified immunity or how uh, how America interprets qualified immunity stems from something called the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act. Now, can you expand on that point for me? How do we draw the through line from that 1871 KKK Act to the modern concept of qualified immunity? Yes, certainly. It's actually really quite simple. Um, Most folks are aware that law enforcement in this country, as we currently know it, grew out of, well, first the slave trade and the ability to catch and return slave when they were in a chattel condition. And then during Reconstruction, it evolved into a way of controlling black people here in this country. And so... The Qualified Immunity Act grew out, of, grew out of that act as a mechanism of societal control. And so for us, it seems pretty clear to me that allowing, you know, incentivizing poor behavior, which is what I believe it does, it effectively does, is not where we want to be going in our public policy. So for me, it, it, it seemed like a pretty straightforward question. And following up on that same thread a little bit more, you also argue in the text of the resolution that the the very concept of qualified immunity has gradually widened and expanded since we arrived at what most considered to be the modern concept of that policy. Can you walk me through that? What what does the expansion looked like since this uh, since this ruling initially came down in the late sixties? Well, allegedly, when the ruling first came down, its objective was to make sure that police officers could take action quickly 
without fearing personal liability. It's a dangerous job. Being a police officer is a very difficult job, particularly in a modern setting where we don't provide them with the resources that they need to be successful, i.e. healthcare professionals, mental health professionals, substance abuse professionals. We dump all of this on our poor officers and expect them to handle everything. So it initially was created as a mechanism by which they could protect so long as it was done in good faith, they could protect the the decision-making of law enforcement officers from civil liability. Um, the problem is that the concept has evolved into its modern iteration, and in its modern iteration, the way it works essentially is that so long as the police officer had a good faith belief that he was acting reasonably, they are then indemnified from the consequences of what would otherwise be negligent, perhaps even homicidal behavior. Um, and one of the problems with having such a radically subjective standard as the standard, as the modern iteration of the standard for qualified immunity, is that theoretically, an officer can say, I feared for my life, and therefore, I use deadly force on this poor unarmed black man. The problem is the fearing for their life is a subjective standard. They, they may legitimately be afraid of black men. And so we find ourselves in a situation where someone can, for reasons that in every other context we would consider racist, be afraid of black men and what it essentially does is that fear empowers them to use deadly force in circumstances that would otherwise be unthinkable. And so it just, it's just evolved into something that incentivizes poor behavior. And I'm a firm believer that, that behavior follows motivation. So if we want to change the behavior of law enforcement officers in this country towards black and brown bodies, we have to change the way we incentivize that behavior. Now, we've been touching on it throughout this entire conversation, and uh, obviously qualified immunity is a concept that exists across the country. But taking this issue more locally, how does qualified immunity and the extension of qualified immunity to law enforcement officers, how does that impact those of us here in Dane County directly? Well, take the Tony Robinson circumstance, for instance. Were there not a presumption of good faith on the part of the officer? I think that that particular case would have turned out very, very differently. And it's not just in one instance. It's in every interaction, every violent interaction with law enforcement officers at every level of government that it would impact us directly in Wisconsin. We, you know, we have just as many interactions, if not more, you know, um, for instance, Dane County as beautiful as it is, and I live here by choice, I moved here from the East Coast, is regularly ranked as one of the worst places in the country to live as a black man. And if you've ever seen the Race to Equity report, the results, the conclusions that are arrived at in that report are just mind-boggling and frankly devastating. And this is a very, this is only one small piece of what would impact the ability of black folks to live peacefully in Dane County, but certainly it's an important one.
And I would assume, I, I'm not an expert on law enforcement in Milwaukee County, but I would assume that the exact same thing applies, that were there an incentive for officers not to shoot first and figure out the circumstances later, but to hesitate for half a second to think, do I really need to murder this individual? Is there really no opportunity for de-escalation prior to moving directly into lethal force? We could change outcomes. We could save lives. So where is this resolution headed next? I understand, I believe last I read, it was it was handed off to the Board of Supervisors leadership. Is that correct? Is it still there? That is correct. Um, I had given uh, our chairwoman a heads up that I was going to introduce it, knowing full well that it is a controversial proposition. So I always, uh, I don't always agree with everyone who I work with, but I try not to surprise my colleagues. So I had let leadership know I was going to introduce it. And when I did, it was immediately transferred into the executive committee. And there it sits. It hasn't gotten on to any of the executive committee's agendas yet. Um, so I'm hoping that very soon some of the members of the executive committee are going to listen to the emails we're receiving from the public and realize that the public wants to see a straight up or down vote on this. In other words, you can't hide it in committee. I guess that it's a controversial issue, but that's what our job is, is to make tough decisions as best we can and then move forward in the best interest of our constituents. So I'm not trying to twist anybody's arm. What I'm saying is that this issue is important enough. It deserves an up or down vote. People need to be on the record. Mr. Gray, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about this resolution? Anything we haven't had a chance to touch on here today in our final minute that you'd sort of like to toss on the record for folks to be aware of? I guess the only thing I would add is that for those of you who are not black or brown folks, try and imagine the fear that you would have if you had a reasonable chance whenever your sons or daughters left your house, that they might not come back alive. Like it's not hyperbolic. It's a very real fear. It's a conversation that every black and brown family, certainly in Dane County, has to have with their children. And if you think about it from that perspective, I think you'll understand a little more clearly why this is such a sensitive issue and important issue for those of us who have to have the talk with our children. Mr. Gray, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Anthony Gray is a member of the Dane County Board of Supervisors. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We have lots more stories coming up in the second half of the show. We take another look at redistricting in Wisconsin, Transparency Talk gives us an open government masterclass, and Radio Chipstone explores personal histories through quilting. But first we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back.
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Sam Schwartz. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this week, both chambers of the Republican-held state legislature approved a resolution that seeks to block extensive changes to Wisconsin's current legislative district lines. That comes as the legal battle over redistricting begins to heat up. Those maps, which were drawn a decade ago, were drafted by legislative Republicans and heavily favor legislative Republicans. For more, Thursday 8 o'clock Buzz host Tony Castaneda spoke with Patrick Marley as state politics reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, with the approval of Senate Joint Resolution 63, uh, which uh, the Republicans uh, uh, passed, I guess, the other day, it declares that as few changes possible should be made to the maps. Um, a lot of people don't know, though, 10 years ago, though, that these changes were extremely drastic. At that time, and this is for everybody out there, Republicans moved about 2.4 million voters around in varying districts when it appears that only about 320,000 voters were needed to be moved to ensure districts had balanced populations. Um, Here to comment more on that is uh, Patrick Marley. Patrick, uh, good morning and thank you uh, for your reporting and also for being on this show this morning. Um, Can you kind of go into that again? How did we, how did you come up with a number that that only 320,000 voters were needed to be moved in these districts and shuffled around. But then, of course, we find out that two, almost two and a half million voters were moved into these districts. What are the ramifications of those moves, first of all? So, I mean, there was extensive litigation over these maps that, that lasted years, uh, which meant that there was you know, an extensive court record and a lot of experts weighed in on this. And so every 10 years, the the states have to draw new maps to make sure that your congressional districts have equal populations, your assembly districts have equal populations. And, you know, they found in uh, in 2010 that uh, districts were not of equal population and, and then you needed to change them to the tune of about 320,000 people to make sure that the assembly uh, seats were of equal population. Republicans control all the state government at the time and they moved you know, several times that number as they worked to maximize their benefits. We you know where these lines go has a, has a great effect on the outcome of who controls the legislature. And so they drew maps that re- really helped them a great deal and helped secure their very large majority in the Assembly and the State Senate over the last decade. But to do that, they had to move, you know, 2.4 million people into new Assembly districts rather than the 300-some thousand that they would have had to move to equalized population. Now, didn't uh, the federal judges who are looking at uh, some of these challenges that de- the Democrats were making about the maps, didn't they take that into consideration? And and why were they not able to act on that? So the judges did, so there were two court cases. In the first one, um, the judges did take a very sharp look at that and had some serious concerns about it. They ultimately did not use that as a basis for making changes to the maps. Um, you know, there's always going to be some number of people moved. Like I said, the 300,000 people had to be moved to make sure that you had equal populations. There's always going to be um, some number where that happens. What what most concerned these judges was that about 300,000 people were moved into new state Senate districts that meant they had to wait an extra two years before they had a chance to vote for state Senate. You mm-hmm. have elections for state Senate every four years. 
Uh, but those, those are staggered terms, so the odd-numbered districts go uh, on one even-numbered year, and then the even-numbered districts go uh, in the next uh, set of elections. And so if you're moved from an odd-numbered district into an even-numbered district or vice versa, you know, your election, instead of being in 2020, would be in 2022, mm-hmm. which would mean you wait, you wait six years between elections instead of four. So that's got real implications for your rights as a voter. That raised concerns among the judges, but they didn't, they didn't see it as enough of a problem to, to strike down any maps on that basis. Republicans are using that as an argument now to keep the maps as they are, because they're like, well, if we do make these changes uh, to go back from before 10 years ago, some of these voters are not going to be able to vote in the next Senate election for, you know, another four years. They're going to have to wait four years or six years for the next election. They're using that argument now, but uh, that didn't seem to bother them 10 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about what happened yeah, 10 I mean, years there's ago? A, there's a dramatic inconsistency in the Republican argument because 10 years ago they controlled all of state government and they had no qualms about moving large numbers of people far more than they needed to move in order to achieve maps that were very helpful to them in elections. Fast forward to today, and we have split government. Tony Evers can veto any maps that um, mm-hmm. that they produce, and so everyone sees that it's very likely that the courts instead will be the ones to draw the map. And so now the Republicans are arguing there should be as few changes to the maps as possible, uh, we should let people, as many people as possible, stay in their current districts, uh, based on the arguments that the Democrats were making a decade ago that you know you shouldn't be moving people into into new districts needlessly. You have this problem as potential temporary disenfranchisement of people who get moved into a new Senate district, um, and so they're they're now adopting the polar opposite argument that they did ten years ago as we head into this court fight over these maps. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the situation in Ozaki County. Um, Ten years ago, they were underpopulated by 10, 10 people. And instead, uh, with the, re- uh, the, re- the, the maps the Republicans drew 10 years ago, they, um, they moved 17,600 people out of that district, and then they moved 18,000 new people into that district, even though they were only underpopulated by 10 people. They moved 719 times as many people as what was needed in that district. Explain that to me. What happened there? So I'm not actually sure of what the um, partisan uh, ramifications were of the changes in that district. The Ozaki County is a very Republican place, so I don't don't know how that changed that Mm -hmm. particular district in terms of its um, own partisan makeup. But it, it shows you it's a good example of the extent to which they moved just huge numbers of voters, you know, they essentially could have left that district unchanged mm-hmm. uh, because it was, you know, the, the population difference was just 10, 10 voters. Um, but they shifted, you know, 10, oh, you know, all, nearly 20,000 people in and out of the district. You know, I guess more than 15,000 would be a fair way to say it. Um, now you got to remember that with these maps, there's, there's this ripple effect, right? If you make changes to one district, it changes the district next to it, which changes the district next to it. So it is true that, like, you know, you can't just leave certain districts completely alone and change other districts. You, right. you do have to, it's all, it's all a big puzzle. But that, that really exemplifies the extent to which they were shifting around just massive numbers of voters. Okay, well, uh, Patrick Marley, and again, I'd like to uh, encourage our listeners to go back and uh, um, check out those articles in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel from yesterday's paper and also Tuesday's uh, news. Uh, Patrick, uh, yeah, well, 
thank you very much uh, uh, for being on the show this morning and, and for, um, um, well, um, investigating this and, and being a good journalist. Thanks, Johnny. Every other Thursday, our producer, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. This week, Kamenick and Chester recapped the 2021 National Freedom of Information Coalition Conference. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined, as is tradition, on the other end of the line by our open government wizard, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you doing this week? Hey, Joan, I've had a busy, busy week at the annual National Freedom of Information Coalition Conference. What a mouthful. The National Freedom of Information Coalition Conference. Yes. Much like uh, when the, the peoples of Middle Earth responded to the call of Elrond to assemble at Rivendell. Each year, the open government and open records nerds from around the country assemble at the National Freedom of Information Coalition Conference. That's going on this week. Tom, tell me a little bit about what's happening there. What's the annual 2021 conference gotten? store. Yeah, they've been doing this for a couple decades now. Normally, it's been a physical event somewhere in the middle-ish part of America where everybody travels to, but the past couple years have been wholly virtual, and all 50 states uh, have representatives sent there, individuals and organizations. So Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, I saw at least four or five of us in the attendee list for all these things. It's a the conference goes over three days and it's full of panels and discussion forums and QA sessions and even some speeches. Uh, yesterday, uh, Senator Patrick Leahy was on uh, extolling the virtues of transparency. It was an interesting watch. And I understand this uh, this year's conference highlights some of the pandemic lessons for transparency. This is the uh, the second conference that's being held in a pandemic. Yeah. So this year we've had, like I said, there's three days and every day there's multiple sessions. So I wanted to talk about some of the more interesting ones and started right off with a, a session called Pandemic Lessons for Transparency, how COVID has affected transparency around the country. So we got a lot of reports from different states on what changed because of, or at least during the pandemic. And looking at it, Wisconsin actually came out looking pretty good. You know, everybody around the country experienced new delays and an increased number of requests, especially for health information. But many states took some really extreme measures, like completely suspending FOIA laws or suspending public meeting requirements, getting rid of or extending deadlines, making it impossible to sue to get records. Uh, some states were really authoritarian and really unhelpful for their constituents because, as was repeatedly pointed out, when government is taking you you know, quite extreme and unprecedented measures. That's when transparency is the most important. When they're saying, you know, we need to do these incredibly uh, authoritarian things to deal with this pandemic, they need to be upfront and transparent about what they're doing. So Wisconsin, we didn't have that kind of an issue. We did see some practical difficulties about getting records and uh, delays in getting records, but the laws were still followed around the board uh, across the board and. Even we were really ahead of the curve getting our local meetings 
up on uh, virtual meetings and covering the hearings that way so people could get access to them. And uh, court hearings happen the same way. We got those done very quickly and with good support from our state DOJ. So that's something to be proud of. Just a quick follow up on that. You mentioned that a lot of states suspended FOIA laws. Uh, can they uh, can they do that? Is that is that a legal thing states can do? Just dump those when it conveniences them? Some of them did it through the legislative process. So they passed a new law saying during these emergencies, don't have to follow them or the, the rules are different. Uh, but some of them came in the form of executive orders from the state governors just suspending it statewide. And I don't know about any particular legal challenges to them, but I, I hope they took a close look at them and there was at least a lot of pushback. Uh, so the other thing that that's happening at this conference is presentation of FOIA research papers. Yeah, this this is the real nitty gritty nerdy stuff in the in the weeds. But there's some really interesting research that they do. A lot of it is uh, based on studies of of states. So they found that across uh, the one study found that across the nation, the number one indicator of FOIA compliance, so getting the records you ask for and getting them quickly is whether there are mandatory fee awards in lawsuits for enforcing record requests. So in Wisconsin, we have that. If you win a record lawsuit, also a meetings lawsuit, the other side has to pay your fee bill. And so that was just solidified too by a strong court of appeals ruling that was in a case the Wisconsin Transparency Project brought. So we're doing good there. Other papers, there was one uh, that looked at every state to see whether or not it had a uh, had a requirement in the in their statutes that the custodian has to acknowledge, provide a written acknowledgement of a record request, and very few states have that. Wisconsin does not either. They ha- they have to respond and provide records or deny it as soon as practicable and without delay. And the attorney general recommends that custodians drop a quick we we have received your request. It will be processed and you'll receive the records or or denial uh, communication from the custodian but it's not legally required. And so there's a recommendation to add that because the, the few states that that did have those requirements, it's very beneficial to make sure that you get an acknowledgement and you know they're actually working on your request. There, were, there was look into the demographics of people who tend to support stronger transparency in FOIA laws. And that was out of Wisconsin. And this is actually the third year in a row that, was, that uh, Wisconsin researchers have submitted papers for these for this topic. And they found that FOIA, people who support FOIA laws tend to be more educated, more politically liberal, and male. Interesting. Now, there's a, there's a few other things here that I'd like to cover before we wrap for the day. There's also strategies for improving FOIA responses without litigation. You know, I don't want to have to sue a government agency to get the stuff I'm entitled to. Yeah, as much as I want to encourage people to be filing lawsuits, in, in all honesty, I don't always say a lawsuit is appropriate. For, I have sent many more letters than I have filed lawsuits, and I have provided many more pieces of, of free advice than, than letters I've sent too. So the, the big takeaway from this was, you know, if you are a reporter, or even if you're a, you know, a, a local political activist, or somebody who's interested in local politics, you're going to be dealing with these people frequently, and being polite with them is going to get you very far and it's going to do well. And it's been been shown to be successful or more likely to be successful for people, especially individuals who regularly make record requests. Don't get on the custodian's bad sides by being a jerk about this. You, know, you don't know what, what they're going through, what kind of a day they've had, and they can make things difficult for you in all kinds of ways that may not be illegal, but make things harder for you. So 
turn turn the other cheek when you are feeling insulted and, and come back with politeness. You can be persistent, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. And another interesting item from the conference, FOIA for millennials and Gen Z, because when I think about the kids these days, you know, they love TikTok, they love fidget spinners, and also <laughs> transparency in government. They do. They were actually talking about TikTok videos specifically and how there there are entire I don't know if they're called channels or maybe they're accounts. I don't use TikTok myself, but uh, there are, there are people who use TikTok exclusively for you know kind of investigative journalism, muckraking, exposing things that they're finding out that are that are wrong. And there's there was a, a whole bunch of presentations of of examples of that and how social media is being used more than just I'm sharing an article I found on Facebook. Stay tuned for the next WORT News Team investigation coming to you exclusively on TikTok, where I will be uh, performing the newest viral dance while exposing uh, misconduct amongst local government. Anyway. Vine. Can we do Vine videos? Too? Uh, Tom, I have bad news for you. Vine Vine is long gone. Vine died a long time ago. Rest in peace. Really? Oh, man. You didn't know that Vine yeah. died? Tom, Vine died like years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've come to the end of our time for today, and I want to let you get back to the uh, next round of discussions and lectures and uh, issues at the conference. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks so much for taking time to chat with me. Always a pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Time right now is 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. When we think of historical exhibits, the objects on display are often the work of those long gone. However, that's not the case in the Ruth Davis Design Gallery exhibit currently on display on the UW-Madison campus at Nancy Nicholas Hall, entitled Politics at Home, Textiles as American History, and curated by the Center for Design and Material Culture. It features work from the Helen Louise Allen Textile Collection and spans from the 18th century to today. On display in large plexiglass box is a quilt whose broad stripes and bright stars come from someplace unexpected. This edition of Radio Chipstone is an excerpt from Refrangible, a podcast created by contributor Jonifer Fields and WORT's assistant news director, Jonah Chester. In it, Fields takes us to the front porch of Sharon Williams, a creator who is as vibrant and alive as her quilt. Sharon Williams has lived in Boykin, Alabama for most of her life. Boykin is known by another infamous name, not because of the people who live there, but because of its history. Located in a bend of the Alabama River, Boykin is also known as G's Bend. It was named after plantation owner Joseph G., who later sold the plantation and the enslaved people to Mark H. Petway. Sharon Williams was born Sharon Petway. Despite its horrible history, Williams and many women who live in the small town are creating amazing quilts that sell for thousands of dollars and hang in museum collections across the country. Growing up in G's Bend was hard. Williams says she spent many days picking cotton before school. It was a family task until her mother became too ill to work in the fields. The doctor took my mama out of the, the field with her. So my mama came home and went to quibbling. 
And that's how I got to uh, doing my equipment stuff, you know, from her. Even though we did win the field, but when we get home, my mama rolled the quip up and uh, tell her, don't mess with my quip. <laughs> but, you know, I was hard-headed. I, I, I mess with her quip all the time. I was trying to learn how to sew. And uh, and, and she found that I, I know how to sew, you know, we're making no stitches. She said, oh, you can help me with my quip now. And that's how I, you know, got to learn how to quilt through my mom. My mother taught me how to sew. But what was fun for me was a necessity for Williams. And to keep warm, like at night, <laughs> you know, when we go jump in the bed, we used to get our quilt and bring it into the fireplace and warm our quilt and run back in there and get up and get in the bed, cover up with it. And, and you know, that kept us warm all night long, our quilt. During our conversation, Williams sits on her front porch looking at birds and farm animals in the field across the road. She's working on a new quilt from her collection of fabric. She doesn't order it online or buy it in a store. These bits of cotton have history. Woo, boy, you know, old clothes, old clothes. You know, uh, back in the day, we used to have flour come in, flour come in the sacks. What you cook with, come mm-hmm. in the Come in little little sacks. We used to use that and old clothes. Like it's some of our clothes old, and we will grow out of them. And nobody, you know, we paid clothes on to family members and stuff like that back in then. But you know, old clothes and stuff we didn't wear no more. And, and we used to, you know, tan them up, cut them up, and just make quilt. It didn't it didn't matter how it looked as long as it was together. While it is true that life was hard for Williams, there was also love and tenderness. Quilting brought mother and daughter together. Well, at least one of the daughters. It was really nice because, you know, it was something that I, I could do with my mother. Me and her could do it, do it together. I don't know what happened to my sister because she acted like she don't know how to make a quilt. <laughs> but I can't... I can't be, I can't, I, I can't remember her helping us on that quip. I just can't remember that. And and, and she really showing me because she sure don't know how to do a quip. <laughs> 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 to tell the truth, when I first started sewing, I used to sit under the quip. Uh, my mama used to be in there just sewing, and I used to sit on the quip and just watch her, you know. And my mama used to get up from the quip or go to the bathroom or go check on the food. I get in her chair, and I thought making stitches. And so one day she 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 told me she said, "Stay from my neck quilt. You gonna get stuck with that needle." I said, "Yes, ma'am." And when she tired, she left out there. I went up there messing with the needle, trying to you know making stitches. So she she stood in the door while I was up in there. She I didn't see her watching me. She said, "Uh huh, you can sew a little bit." So I got somebody to help me sew now, and so. That's how I really started sewing. My mama saw that I knew how to make a stitch. And so, you know, she gave me my needle and my thread. And so I started up to the quilt with her and just watch, you know, so help her sew. One of the quilts created by Williams is currently on display in an exhibition entitled Politics at Home, Textiles as American History. It's curated by the Center for Design and Material Culture, located in the Ruth Davis Design Gallery in Nancy Nicholas Hall. According to Williams, the fabric she used was just waiting for her to be inspired to turn it into something beautiful. Oh, I had that piece of material. I don't know how I come by that piece of material. 
it's just every time I pull my stuff up, just the work on something to sew, that material just come up in my face. It just come up every time. I don't know how I come by. I think I came by by like people were giving away like old clothes and old old clothes and sometimes material stuff. I think I came by that piece of material by old clothes or something. And every time I sew, I I, I when I go through my stuff with my tote with my uh, sewing stuff at that color just come up. And I, one day I looked at, it, I said, I'm gonna do something with this. And you know, I just got my sewing machine. I went to doing this, and then I said, this look good. Then I just start, you know, putting it together, and and that's what I, that's what I came up with. It just like it just kept on jumping at me, you know. Do something with this. Do something with this, and and that's what I came up with. With its stars and stripes, the quilt has a patriotic flair. The colors bounce around the strips of fabric like notes of music. With me, I love the strip too. They, uh, you know, I love to do the strip. The strip, you you know, you ain't going by no pattern. It's just, uh, you know, just doing the script, just doing your thing, freestyling, you know, with your thing. Wherever you pick up, you just put it together. (laughs) Williams still lives in G's Bend, but its history does not define her. She is making history, and it is absolutely lovely. I never thought this would happen. I'm at 62 years old, and like I said, I never... I never thought this would happen. I'm so I'm so grateful and so thankful for what you know what I don't uh, know accomplished that I don't know what to do. I I I really enjoy making quilt because it makes people happy and it makes me happy. For W O R T, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for W O R T's live local news at six. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonifer Fields, Tom Kamenick, and the 8 o'clock buzzes Tony Castaneda. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Have a good one. Say it with me. W O R T Madison.